I was going to make a comment about some of those newer songs being a little bit difficult to sing, not the one we sang this morning so much, but some of the other ones that he's written, and, and then I realized that I didn't know the tune of that one as well as I thought I did. But it's a good song. It's encouraging to know that we have a new name written down in glory, that it's ours, that it is connected with Christ by whose name we are saved. And so uh, I think that that's an encouraging thing certainly for us to remember. Um, along those lines, just a quick item of bit of business. Mike and Kitsy, are you uh, prepared to be received in membership this morning after the service? Okay. I meant to touch base with you before the service, but we'll do that right as we wrap up the sermon. So, uh, just encouraged with the different folks who've been connected with our church and uh, being added to the membership, many of whom are no strangers to us, been here for a while, but uh, or been connected with our church in the past, but it's exciting to see how God works in those ways. Along the lines of someone coming and becoming a Christian, what are some of the first things that you think someone should know as a Christian? It's just a rhetorical question, something to think about for a moment. With regard to the early church, there was certainly a set of expectations of what both new converts needed to believe, and also with what they needed to do. And I think the same is true for us today. We have a certain set of expectations for people who are looking to join the church, people who are newly saved, and we say these are the things of what it means to be a Christian. And I think we have to remember, as this passage reminds us, that sometimes our list and God's list don't always line up. And of course, if there's a disconnect, we need to go with what's on God's list. And the two main questions that I think that this passage answers for us are, what is the way of salvation, and how do we live graciously with one another in the church? Specifically, this was connected with the contrast between Jews and Gentiles. Our tendency, with regard to both of those questions, is either to add to or to take away from what God has said. With regards to what God has said and how we tend to do this, Think back to the Garden of Eden. What did Satan say? Satan said, God didn't really say that. So initially, there was a taking away of what God said. And then by Eve, there was an adding to. God said, don't eat from the tree or touch it. The Pharisees did a very similar thing in Jesus' day. They said, here's what God's law said. But we're going to add all these other things so that we make sure we don't miss the mark. But in so doing they started focusing on all of the extra things that they had added and not the law itself. In the same way, it is very important for us to understand that when we come to the question of how are we right before God, we cannot take away from what God has said. We cannot add to what God has said. We can't take away things like repentance and faith. We can't add to it things like living a good life or all of those sorts of things as being the thing that results in salvation. Now certainly, we recognize that repentance and faith are only because of God's work in us, that living a good life must follow afterward, but it's the order of all, things that is, of all these things that is critically important. So what was the issue? Well, we see it in verse 1. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Verse 5. It is necessary to circumcise them and to, to direct them to observe the law of Moses. And then, of course, Peter's words in verse 11, but we believe 
that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way that they also are. And then verse 19, Therefore it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated from idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. And then it says in verse 28, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials. And he essentially repeats what he said in verse 20. And then we see the response of the church at Antioch to these things. So when it says some men came down from Judea, it seems that they were coming down to the church in Antioch. And they were saying, that's great that the gospel has come to all of you Gentiles, but you are not really followers of God unless you also follow all of the details of the law. In other words, prior to the coming of Christ, how were people properly related to God? Through the nation of Israel. And a, good, a significant sign of this was following the rite of circumcision, following the purification ceremonies connected with the synagogue, and these were the things that enabled even a Gentile to become connected to God in some way through the people of Israel. Not recognizing that God was doing a new and rather different thing in the church, that the way of salvation was not specifically through the Jews in the same way that it had been in times past, these Jews, these Pharisees, as it says later, in, uh, particularly in verse 5, basically said, if you are going to be right with God, you have to follow all the requirements of the law. This is a significant question, because here are people who have never been required to follow the law, being told that you must follow the law in order to be rightly related to God. This would be different than someone like Paul, for example. This would be different from someone like Peter, who had grown up following the law, and so from them, for them, it was not an addition, but rather a continuing of things that they were already doing. But for these Gentiles, it would be a new thing altogether. Um, without going into all the details of it, consider both the personal sacrifice and the burden that would be connected with following all these requirements. You see examples of this in the Old Testament. It, would, it was neither an easy nor a desirable process to go through, and yet it was something that the Gentiles submitted themselves to throughout the Old Testament, even up into the time of Christ. But it's important to recognize that though the way of salvation had not changed, Peter highlights this in verse 11, we believe we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. The way of, the salvation, of salvation had not changed, but the exercise of that salvation and the primary group through whom God was working in the world had changed. Paul goes into that in more detail, for example, in Romans 9 through 11. So here's the church at Antioch rejoicing in what God has done, that the gospel is going among the Gentiles. Paul and Barnabas just get back from their first missionary journey. Everyone's rejoicing. And then here come these guys down from Judea, from Jerusalem, and are saying, sorry guys, you're not doing it the right way. And even more emphatically than that, unless you are following Moses' customs, you're not even Christians. Rejoicing? Where do we stand before God? That's a significant thing to consider. 
verse 2, I think, uh, indicates that Paul and Barnabas were not willing just to say, no big deal, we agree with what you're saying, we'll, we'll let the, the Gentiles or, or cause them to do these sorts of things. It says, there was great dissension and debate. And so then there was this encouragement to go down to Jerusalem to confer with the apostles, and the church sends them out to do so. I, I believe that this uh, is something that we should consider. What, what is the role of church councils in evaluating doctrine? Uh, certainly in some churches, the decisions of various church councils, the creeds and beliefs of the early church have huge weight. And I think that this council is somewhat unique among all of the other church councils that we see later in the first three or four centuries of the church. And that was, here is one at which apostles are present, at which a critical decision is made with regard to doctrine that would either be the way forward for Jews and Gentiles being united in the church or would create an inseparable divide between those two groups. And so I do think that the decision of this particular council is more weighty than the conclusions of other councils since then. That being said, to the degree that those other councils of Nicaea and other cities reflect biblical doctrine, I think that those are important for us to consider and to weigh seriously as we look at the subjects like the Trinity, like who is Jesus and all of those sorts of things. This also... I think poses a question of what does this have to do with the authority and independence of the local church? If there's some sort of question, does there need to be an outside body to sort of referee the discussion, to arbitrate it for us? And I think the answer is, again, the uniqueness of this situation has to do with the fact that there were apostles still living and they were having a conversation directed by the Holy Spirit about what it was that God wanted them to do. I don't think that this undermines the authority of the local church at all. It just highlights some of the differences between then and now. That being said, sometimes, because we are where we are in history, in our church specifically, in churches at large in the United States, sometimes we tend to say what other churches think, what other people who have come before us have said, that doesn't have all that much weight. And I think it is important for us to consider that God is working through a number of churches, not just our church, and while it is possible for even the majority of churches to be wrong on a particular issue, it would at least do us well to consider all of those things that are going on in Christianity generally because it is possible for us in a specific context to be wrong on a particular issue, to have to confront that, and to have to move forward according to what Scripture says. Verse 3, some have described it as a... Um, what would the right word be, a, uh, a tour, kind of like what politicians will do in the final push before a campaign. And I think there is a slight element of that, although there's a lot of differences as well. I think that the reason that uh, Paul and Barnabas passed through Phoenicia and Samaria is simply to say, is to, to continue the work that they were doing in verse 27. They began to report all things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith for the Gentiles. Now, certainly, it's not a problem to, um, for them to highlight God's work in support of what it was they were going to say at Jerusalem. That being said, ultimately, it was not a question of popularity or who agreed with whom. It was a question of what was pleasing to God. So I think they're just simply continuing the work that they began in verse 27. 
uh, verse 4, when they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church, the apostles and the elders, and reported all that God had done with them. Again, a continuation of what happened in verse 27, that they reported what God had done, how he had ministered to the Gentiles. They told the church at Antioch that. They told the church at Phoenicia and Samaria that. They are now telling the church at Jerusalem the same thing. There is consistency in the testimony that they're bearing of God's work. But then, again, there's this opposition. Uh, perhaps the same group, perhaps another group that has very similar ideas, that is not the same group that had gone down to Antioch, but they are repeating almost the same thing. It is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. Why was this so essential? Well, we think back to the law of Moses, and in the Old Testament, someone who refused to submit to the rite of circumcision, who was an Israelite, was to be cut off from their people. And again, is there any moral significance with that specific act? No, the act itself does not confer grace or create holiness or anything like that, but rather it was a sign that God basically said, if you are following me, if you are genuinely related to me, you're going to do this. And so this was extremely important to the Jewish people, and for good reason, because God had stressed the importance of it to them. But again, this was something that was a uniquely Jewish command. And I think just to pause at this particular point, some people will draw a direct line between the Old Testament rite of circumcision and the New Testament ordinance of baptism. There are a number of reasons that we can't go into great detail about why I think that's an invalid connection, but I think one of the most important ones for us to highlight is that one was a symbol that marked off an ethnic group of people that both lost and converted people participated in simply because of that ethnic group, and it was something that was not... Um, it was a sign that they were set apart, but it was not a picture of the same things that baptism is. What's the difference with baptism? Baptism is something that's not just for Jews. That is specifically for people who have believed and trusted in Christ and is a picture of Christ and His work specifically. Circumcision pictured being dedicated to God. Baptism pictures specifically being connected with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And so there are parallels between the two, but they are not the same thing, and we have to be very careful of that. Uh, and I think that this passage will continue to support that idea. What's the response in verse 6? They came together to look into the matter after there had been much debate. Again, verse 2, Paul and Barnabas had debate with these that had come down from Judea. Here, the apostles are having debate amongst themselves with the elders of the church of Jerusalem. What is Peter's response? Peter stood up and said, You know, in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. Now, this might be a little bit surprising because we've just been talking about Paul being the apostle to the Gentiles and Paul and Barnabas being the one that were going on this missionary journey. But Peter is essentially saying, even though you're questioning what Paul and Barnabas are doing, this didn't start with Paul and Barnabas. This started with the ministry of the apostles as given by God. I received the vision from God. Remember that back uh, earlier in the book of Acts. I received this vision from God. God said to go here. God's spirit was clearly poured out among the Gentiles. And so this is not a new thing. This is, in fact, something that had happened some eight to ten years prior to this discussion. And he just sort of highlights in verses 8 and 9, 
the gift of the Holy Spirit showed that this was, in fact, God's work. So this is not a new thing that Paul and Barnabas have come up with. This is not something that we should be opposing because it is God's work. And he also highlights in verse 9, he made no distinction between us and them. And that had to be something that, that at least at some level, these that were standing up and saying that there needed to be circumcision, there needed to be following of the law of Moses, no distinction between us and them. I mean, they may be part of this group, but, but really there's no difference in God's sight between us and them. We're the Jews. We're the people who have the law. We're the ones who've been God's people for centuries. And you're saying there's no distinction between us and them? This is a, a, a phrase that I think would have sort of seized their attention. And then in verse 10, it is interesting that he says, why do you put God to the test? Where have we seen this sort of idea before? This idea of opposing God, putting God to the test, uh, trying to thwart God's work. We've seen it several instances already in this book of Acts. Uh, we see a consistent emphasis on those who were seeking to oppose the message of the gospel, that they were set in direct opposition to God. Gamaliel put this idea forth with regards to Stephen. If we're opposing God, or with regards to the apostles, if they're opposing God, it'll be brought to nothing. We don't want to be on the side of opposing God. And yet that's where the Pharisees and Sadducees largely landed for the intervening chapters between then and now. They were opposing God. They tried to kill Paul. They tried to silence Peter and John, all of these sorts of things. There's this opposition of God, and Peter puts this in the same category. If you put this yoke upon them, this requirement of following the Old Testament law, you will be found to be opposing God. Why? The end of verse 10, neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. Paul's going to explain this at length later in the book of Romans and in other places as well, Galatians, for example. The Old Testament law had a function. It was not bad in and of itself, even though it made us aware of sin, revealed our sin, condemned us in God's sight. The law was good. The problem was not the law. The problem was us and our sinfulness. But, as Paul will stress in the book of Romans, we cannot be saved by the keeping of the law. Peter is saying the exact same thing. Here's the thing that God set before us. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said this is the summary of the Ten Commandments and all the rest that's contained in the law. And who among us can live up to that? Peter says we couldn't do it. Why would we put them under the burden of keeping a law that we couldn't even keep ourselves? Why would we put them under the burden of a law that only one has kept perfectly and freed us from being enslaved to that law and accused of sin, rightfully so, and condemned by God? Why would we go back there if Christ has come? That's essentially what he's saying. In verse 11, we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. At this point, sometimes people will draw a line between the way of, the sal of salvation in the Old Testament and the way of salvation in the New Testament. They'd say that people in the Old Testament were saved by law, people in the New Testament were saved by grace. That is an, an inaccurate summary of what God is doing. Rather, here's how, it, how we could look at it. God gave the law to the Israelites. If they had kept that law, they would have been justified before God. No one did. 
The law could not save. The law could only condemn and make us aware of our sinfulness and show us more and more and more how much we needed Christ. So Paul says, and Peter says, and the testimony of the New Testament is, you're not saved by keeping the law because it can't save you. You can't live up to its standards. None of you follow it the way that you should. You needed someone else to fulfill the law. If he fulfilled the law, Christ did so perfectly, both in regards to the prophecies of the Old Testament and the specific requirements of what God commanded of holiness and of not sinning, both sides of it, all of those dimensions of it, we're over here. We recognize the law has its use, and as we will see later in the chapter, and connected with what Paul says in Galatians, and connected with what Paul will testify in another place, we still are under a law, but it's not the law of Moses, it's the law of Christ. What's the connection between those two things? The connection between those two things is the same God who gave the law to Israel is the same God whose character is reflected in the law of Christ. This is a tension for us because sometimes we look at the Ten Commandments, we say the Ten Commandments applies to the church today. And my argument would be, if Christ fulfilled the law, He has taken care of all those things. We follow the things that are commanded us in the New Testament not because they're in the Old Testament law, but because they are the things that God has required of the church and because they are the things that reflect God's character and the way that He has explained it to the church at this time. It doesn't mean that God changed His mind. It doesn't mean one way was right and the other way is wrong. It simply means that what God was doing then and what God is doing now are connected but not the same specific thing. Now, as we think through this, what does that imply about what we must do? We might conclude and say, well, that means we just sort of throw out the Old Testament because it's all that law stuff, we don't need it. Just give you an example. Um, why do you put salt on your sidewalk in the wintertime? To melt the ice. But what's your motivation for doing so? There's a couple of possible motivations. One would be, because you don't want to get sued, but a, perhaps a better one would be the same motivation or perhaps an application of the principle of what they had in the Old Testament, which was build a little fence around the roof of your house so no one falls off of it because you love God and you love your neighbor. Does the Old Testament law have relevance for us today? Yes, because it illustrates in many different specific practical ways all of these things of what it means to love God and love your neighbor. Are we required to build a fence around the roof of our house? No. Why? Well, for one thing, we don't have flat roofs. For another thing, that was something that was specifically commanded to Israel that's not commanded to us, and yet the principle has validity, and it's important for us to understand the connection between these things. Are we supposed to love God and love our neighbor now like the Israelites were supposed to then? Yes. But now we have Jesus who perfectly did it. And we are enabled to, though not perfectly, do that more and more each day. But the way of salvation that is explained in verse 11 is the way of salvation that has always been the way of salvation. Because no one in the Old Testament kept the law, so anyone who was saved was only saved by God's grace. And even though all were given the law, 
not all were rightly related to God. And so it was not about being born an Israelite. It was not about any of those sorts of things. Instead, it was about how am I related to God through His grace, looking to the promises that He has made of the Messiah, which become more and more specific as the years go on, ultimately fulfilled in Christ, such that we can say, how am I saved? I believe in Jesus. Again, we might say, well, if they only had to believe what was revealed to them at that time about God, then maybe there was someone in Phoenicia or Assyria or Babylon in the ancient days, and if they really followed their God really well, then God just sort of like swept it under the rug and said everything's okay between me and you. No, that's where the connection with coming through the nation of Israel came because they were the ones to whom God had given the law that God had revealed himself. So it's not just follow Marduk, follow Baal, follow whatever deity you want to follow, and God will just sort of accept it. Rather, it is be rightly related to God as revealed in his word, which he had given to his people Israel. But now there is this broadening of who God's word had been given to. It hadn't just been given to Israel, but the message of the gospel has now been taken to the Gentiles as well. We saw that expansion. Acts 2, it went to the Gentiles. Acts 8, it went to the Samaritans. Acts 10, it began to be given to the Gentiles. Now there's this question. What is the way of salvation, and how do we get along with each other in the church? What's the response of the people? Verse 12, all the people kept silent, and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So there's um, opposition. You must keep the law in order to be saved. There is a response of, here's what God's done among the Gentiles, or, or a debate Here's what God's done among the Gentiles. Here's what God's done among the Gentiles. Here's the opposition again. Here's further debate. Here's what God's done among the Gentiles. Again, he keeps pointing out, Luke keeps, I think, highlighting, God is the one who's working among the Gentiles. So again, which category are you going to find yourself in? Are you going to be one who opposes God or one who accepts God's work? Now James is going to stand up. And James... Uh, by this point, the half-brother of Christ had come to be a leader in their church at Jerusalem, and I think that's why his words are both recorded here and had the weight that they did for the early church. It says in verse 14, Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. Simeon would be to use uh, Peter's Jewish name, Simeon or Simon, uh, his birth name, and he's basically saying, here's what he's saying, and here's how it connects with what God has already said. With these words, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After these things I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, so the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. We have a little bit of a tension here because when he quotes here from the book of Amos, chapter 9, uh, verses 11 and 12, it says, In that day I will raise up the fallen booth of David and I wall up its breaches. I will raise up also its ruins and rebuild as it, it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations which are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. And so we do see some difference. It says, so the rest of mankind may seek the Lord instead of that they may possess the remnant of Edom. Why this discrepancy? Is uh, James changing the Old Testament text 
is he, uh, what's going on here? Um, apparently, the text of the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, had a different reading than what we have uh, in probably your Bible in Amos 9, 11, and 12, and it was more closely aligned with what James quotes here. Why would he quote the Greek instead of the Hebrew Old Testament? Why would he go with one that seems to have a different reading? I think the bottom line is it's something that we could go round and round about, but the main point is this. He's not changing the intent of the text. He is either making a specific application of the text to their situation, or he's saying here is the correct reading of the text according to what God had uh, originally intended it to say. Either way, what's the point? The point is this. God intended for his message to come to the Gentiles. And God's message coming to the Gentiles was not in opposition to his plan, but rather in fulfillment of his plan. And so if God intended that he would work among the Gentiles and that they would all together seek the Lord and that they would be called by his name, what does that mean? That means that those who oppose that work, specifically the Jews who are standing up and saying, go back to following the law, go back to circumcision, if they did not turn away from their specific point of contention, they were going to be found in opposition to God's will. And this was a very serious thing for them to consider. And that's the conclusion that James draws. Verse 19, Therefore it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and is from blood. For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him since he has read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Again, these are some difficult phrases to think through, but the bottom line, I think, of what he's saying is this. If God's purpose is for the gospel to go to the Gentiles, and it clearly is from the book of Acts, and it clearly is either by way of direct quotation or by way of application from the passage in Amos, then we should not oppose God's purpose. And opposing God's purpose would look like saying to Gentiles, you have to be circumcised, you have to follow every requirement of the law of Moses. Again, why? Because that doesn't save people and because it's not something that they were already doing, and because you're putting a burden on them if you require them to do it. Well, what about verse 20? This seems like a burden that they're putting on them. Why are they saying these four things? And there's different ways to understand these particular uh, uh, prohibitions, I guess we could say. Abstain from things contaminated by idols seems to be connected with idol worship and potentially the issue of meat sacrifice to idols that Paul's going to bring up later in both Romans and in 1 Corinthians. Fornication could either be just generally avoiding sexual immorality or specifically avoiding immorality as it was part of pagan worship. The last two things, I think, are very clearly tied to what things would have been specifically offensive to Jewish people, what is strangled, and what is from blood, because this was part of the requirement of the Jewish law. What would be considered kosher? What would be considered um, acceptable as far as the food that you ate? So we have a couple of questions that we have to ask ourselves. 
was James in the same breath saying, don't put a burden on the Gentiles and then putting a burden on the Gentiles? Was he saying, don't follow the law, but you need to follow some of the parts of the law? Essentially, I think what James is doing here is this. James is saying to the Gentiles, Gentiles, act like God has changed your life. You participated in idolatry, you participated in immorality, whether as a specific part of your religion or just as a general habit of life, don't go back to living that way. But because God has put you in the church with Jews for whom you know specific things are going to be highly offensive, don't eat meat that has been strangled or meat that has the blood still in it because of the Old Testament requirements. So essentially what's going to happen is this. There are going to be people who are Jews who at least for a time, at least in that generation, are going to continue to follow some of the requirements of the Old Testament law. Paul himself does this, right? He makes a vow, shaves his head, he offers sacrifices, he goes through purification ceremonies. We're going to see that later in the book of Acts. But he did not require his Gentile converts who heard the message of the gospel to do all those things the way that he was doing it. And yet he knew that if there is a, an obstacle created by his actions, his goal was to make sure the gospel be proclaimed clearly. Why then was Timothy circumcised? Timothy was caught in a weird situation where his mother was a Jew and his father was a Gentile, and Paul knew he's not going to have opportunity to go into the synagogue if he's not circumcised. And uh, that was part of the specific ministry task that Timothy was going to accompany Paul that he wouldn't have been able to do if he hadn't done that. Again, it was not a, let's sweep it under the rug, say it's, it's a way of salvation. It was just a practical consideration with the ministry that Paul and Timothy were going to have. What about verse 21? For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. He's either saying, do these things because they were already found and consistent with things that God had said in times past. Uh, some people would highlight excerpts from Leviticus 17 and 18. Or, this is what's still being proclaimed. You can go and hear it. You can go and be acquainted with it. But uh, either way, this is something that's still ongoing. So we have two issues. But the two issues are not disconnected. How are you saved? And how do you relate to other people in the church, particularly when there is a difference of, we could say, conscience in light of our discussion in Sunday school about what is right and what is wrong. Those who are convinced that a particular thing is wrong should not do it themselves. Those who are convinced that a particular thing is wrong cannot at the same time go and force that on everyone else and try to burden them because at some level... This issue of conscience goes from merely how do we get along with each other in the church to how are we right with God. And then it's not a question of you can think this, I can think that. Peter and James and Paul are going to agree there is one way of salvation. There is no room for difference. You can't say this person saved by the law, this person saved by grace. We are only saved by grace because no one kept the law. There can be no disagreement about that. What does my daily life and walk with God look like? Well, it looks like holiness. So don't commit immorality and don't commit idolatry. And it looks like loving others as well. So that's why, at least in this time, they were to abstain from this particular um, 
what is strangled and what had blood associated with it. Again, what's the main point? The main point is this. How am I saved? By grace, through faith in Christ, through the message of the gospel found in the scripture. How do I relate to other people in the church? With the same sort of grace that God showed to me as well. Verses 22 through 29 is essentially them just taking this message elsewhere. It seemed good to the apostles and to the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. Then they send this letter, the apostles and brethren who are elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia who are from the Gentiles, greetings. Since we have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls, note the connection back to verse 19, and troubling the Gentiles, it seemed good to us, having become of one mind, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. So then when they were sent away, they went down to Antioch. They're carrying this letter. Having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. When they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And then verse 32, Judas and Silas, being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. After they had spent time there, they were sent away from the brethren in peace to those who had sent them out. But Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, teaching and preaching with many others also the word of the Lord. Chapter 14 ended with encouragement. God has taken the gospel to the Gentiles. Chapter 15 is drawing to a conclusion with encouragement. God has taken the gospel to the Gentiles. There's this crisis. What's going to happen? Is there more than one way to God? What is the right way to God? Is there going to be this irreconcilable split in the church between Jews and Gentiles? God, through His work, uh, both of those who are taking the gospel to the Gentiles, those who are taking the gospel to the Jews, and those who are leaders in the early church, all come together and say, under the ministry of the Holy Spirit and according to what God's Word has said, as, uh, from what we understand of God's purpose, God's will in the world, both the Old Testament as well as what we've seen taking place in our lifetime, God wants the gospel to go to the Gentiles. They're saved by grace just like us. Some of us are going to continue to follow some of the Old Testament law practices, but not because they save us. And that's an important distinction. Rather, as Paul will say in another place in 1 Corinthians, because I don't want to create unnecessary obstacles to proclaiming the gospel. Did he need to shave his head, follow ceremonial washings, all of those sorts of things, in order to take the gospel to Jews? No, but he knew he was going to immediately create an obstacle for them if he didn't. Just as a side note, was it effective when he did those things? No, they still tried to kill him, and he still ended up in Rome as a prisoner. And so, all that to say simply the fact that uh, our best efforts to remove obstacles to the gospel are not going to guarantee a particular result. But again, how are we saved? Through grace. 
There's one way of salvation. How do we relate to one another in the church? We relate to one another in the church by loving God, so no idols, no immorality, by loving each other. So if there's some specific thing that we know is going to be a huge obstacle to other people, we consider limiting our freedom while at the same time, as we'll see in our study of conscience, seeking to encourage people with Scripture, not so that we say, violate your conscience, but simply so we say, here's what God has said. That's what Paul's going to get into in great detail in 1 Corinthians 8-10 through 10 and Romans 14 and 15. The main point here, though, is don't trouble those who turn by changing the way of salvation, because there's no room for error on that, or by, by creating unnecessary division, because again, the goal of the church is to be unified, not because of your ethnic background, not because of your education, your financial status, any of those things that are the criteria for how we relate to people out in the world sometimes, but rather relate to people in the church on the basis of the common salvation that you have in Christ, work to serve them, and work to see God's message continue to go forward. Don't do things that are going to destroy the unity of the church. What should our attitude be at the end of reading all this? Hopefully our attitude should be that we are encouraged. Because that was the goal of Paul and Barnabas. God is doing this work. Let's be encouraged. Other people are saying, we don't know about that. The response of the early church council of Jerusalem was, God's work is going forward. Be encouraged. Here's how we can help it keep going forward. So I think these are things that are important for us to consider even today. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at these truths from your word, there are a number of complicated issues that are sort of tied into this passage that I know that I didn't fully do justice to. And so, Lord, we pray that you will help us to continue to understand these things better the more that we reflect on them. And even so, I think the main point of this passage is clear, that you are the one who is doing this work that you are the one who is honored when we submit to your work in the world, that there is one way and has only ever been one way of coming to you, and that is through the grace that you offer, through the, what you've revealed about yourself and whether we believe and trust in that. That understanding certainly grew over the centuries as you revealed more and more about who it was was going to fulfill your plan such that today, Lord, we look back on Christ and say Christ is the way of salvation. Lord, when it comes to how we relate to each other in the church, there's, there's different ideas that we have about what's right and what's wrong, and we must show grace and love one another and preserve the unity of the church with a goal that all of us will be more closely focused on you and what you have said and what is true so that the end result is that more people turn to you and that you receive the glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.